Welcome back to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. On this program, we'll be exploring an area of sustainability that you may not have thought much about, but one that affects you every day when you get dressed. We'll be looking at sustainability in the fashion and clothing industry. My guest is Gwendolyn Hustved, an associate professor in the School of Family and Consumer Sciences at Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. Her area of expertise is fashion merchandising, with an emphasis on sustainable fashion, or what is called eco-fashion. Eco-fashion is about creating clothing that uses sustainable fabrics and materials, materials that are friendly to the earth in terms of how they are grown and produced. It also considers the conditions under which workers cut and sew the clothing, how durable the garment will be, what kind of care it requires, and what happens to it once you are done with it. The aim is to make you think about the entire life cycle of every piece of clothing you buy. Gwendolyn, welcome to Mothering Earth. Sure. I'd like to start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself in terms of what kinds of classes you teach here at Texas State and some of the projects you've done with your students. My my background is actually in textile science. Um, I got my undergrad in biochemistry and did a master's in textile chemistry and then a PhD in consumer behavior. Within the fashion curriculum, my area is product development, which is the intersection between the research, right, from the science side and uh, consumer needs. We put those together and then we better understand what kind of products we can create for people. I teach the textiles class. It's a it's a science class that is required for fashion students, highly recommended for interior design students. Any given semester, only about half of my class are those types of students. The rest are just students who are curious, which I think is great. For many people, this will be the first time that they have a science class that's actually relevant to their everyday life. I mean, who doesn't want to know about the chemistry behind a good hair day, right? <laughs> or why their hair is curly. And uh, a lot of people live their whole lives surrounded by textile materials. Even the chairs we're sitting on use textile materials. And they don't really think about where those materials came from, how they were produced, uh, the mm. limits of their nature, right? How they can be uh, modified to serve different purposes. So I love that class because I feel like I'm teaching science to people who think they don't like it, but who realize pretty quickly that it can be a lot of fun to know about the world that matters to you. And how did you first uh, get interested in sustainability as it relates to fabrics, to materials, to fashion? Sure. Well, I mean, I think that probably some of it I have to credit my upbringing. I grew up in the mountains above Boulder and uh, lived there with my family. Uh, our home did not have electricity or plumbing. Uh, I learned all sorts of different needle crafts from my grandmother and my mother. Uh, she used a treadle sewing machine, um, you know, that you pump wow. with your feet because uh -huh. uh, we didn't have electricity. Uh, we got electricity by the time I went to school. Uh, so I've always been very interested in making, which is what they call it now, um, making. And uh, while I was in college, I actually apprenticed with a master tailor and ran a business in tailoring for a long time. But I never really, um, even though I was a business person, I never really lost my interest in um, making sure that what I was doing was meaningful, uh, making sure that it met the, 
the ethical standards that I've been raised with in terms of um, caring for people and uh, caring for animals and caring for nature, um, which you get when you grow up in the woods. Um, so when I was working on my master's, uh, I was given an assistantship at University of Nebraska, and the professor said she was would like a student to work on a sun protection project. We'd learned about naturally colored cotton in one of the classes I took. I was intrigued by the idea that cotton wasn't originally white. It's not even white now. It's actually off-white, but that's a separate issue. Uh, that, that it came, you know, grows indigenously yeah. in the Americas in all sorts of different shades, ranging from red and brown to green, and that the off-white is just one expression. And... Uh, this is the, an ode to straight-up library research. I was in the library reading up on naturally colored cotton, found an article from uh, Science, the journal Science from the mm -hmm. 50s, that mentioned that the isolated fraction of the green cotton was fluorescent. And I knew from my background that fluorescence means that a compound is absorbing UV radiation mm -hmm. and retransmitting it on a different wavelength. That's why it fluoresces. But absorbing UV radiation... That's step number one in sun protection. Right. So if something absorbs UV radiation, that's a good thing. So I proposed to the professor that I should examine the sun protection provided by naturally colored cotton. I wanted to help create a market for naturally colored cotton. Yeah. And I was right based on that hypothesis I formed. Not every master's student gets that, right? Gets to form a novel hypothesis. Uh, Off-white cotton, the, the white cotton, has a UPF of six. And these are similar to sun protection, SPF. Green cotton has a, has a UPF of 60. So it's wow. 10 times more protective wow. than the white cotton. So that's kind of how I got into it. And then when I went to K-State for my PhD, I wanted to research uh, the market for organic cotton. It was a very new, uh, the, the products hadn't caught on well. I was curious whether or not there were, there was a segment of consumers that would buy a really, really a product with a really small amount of organic cotton. Mm -hmm in part because I knew as a textile scientist that we can't tell the difference between organic cotton and conventional cotton in a laboratory. By the time the product has been made into a textile product, the cotton, it's been washed so many times that any pesticide residue due to its processing has been thoroughly removed. So I knew that there wasn't actually any health benefit to the consumer of buying an organic cotton product, mm -hmm. right? You, we can't tell the difference right. between them. There's no indicator, right? Uh, unlike organic food, where we think that there may be some nutritional differences, right? Mm -hmm. Or in some cases, the food processing does leave a residue on the surface. Right. It's not washed thoroughly enough. And so I was curious, are there people who would be willing to pay for 5% organic cotton because they understand that they're supporting farmers who want to change how they farm? They're supporting farming practices that improve the health of farm families, right. that right. protect infants that live in farming communities. And I kind of got a mixed answer. There are a lot of people who believe that organic cotton products are better for the health of their family, even though we don't have any evidence in pretty compelling yeah. case that there's no difference. I think that's probably a widespread Pro widespread uh, belief. Yeah, belief, I, yeah, I agree. It made me a little nervous because because of my belief in ethical consumption. I also want there to be ethical marketing on the other side. I don't want consumers who are interested in sustainability to be taken advantage of, right, right to be sold things that aren't 
there. That's why I'm so, so unhappy about the mislabeling of rayon as this imaginary fiber called bamboo. It's, it's against the law to mislabel products, and the Federal Trade Commission has sued companies that have labeled rayon as, quote, bamboo, unquote. There's no such fiber. There never has been. There's and no such fiber as bamboo. There's a fiber called rayon. It can be made from all sorts of cellulose sources, bruce right. trees, switchgrass. Uh, a lot of rayon is made from the paper left over, f- uh, the pulp left over from the paper manufacturing process. Is that right? So depending on the country you're in, the pulp for paper will come from trees. And if you're in Asia, it will come from bamboo. But it's still um, a pulp that's full of all kinds of chemicals that were used to make the paper. Uh, the rayon that's made, it doesn't matter whether it's made from a spruce tree or a pine tree or a bamboo plant, it's still rayon. And rayon has a specific set of properties mm-hmm. that aren't improved by making it from one cellulose source versus another. Mm-hmm. It's still pills. It still shrinks. It's still very uh, poor abrasion resistance. Still wears out a lot faster than cotton, but it flows. It looks so nice. <laughs> it looks so beautiful. It's very soft. It's yeah. it's very inexpensive. Yeah, and so that's where I got super angry because I realized that people who who understood that their products weren't selling well because consumers were unhappy about their experience with Rayon could just change the name. They could pick a new name that conveyed all kinds of environmentally <laughs> friendliness about it. Right? They could tell stories about antimicrobial properties. Mm. Do you think any microbe likes to eat a fiber that's made with a lot of chemicals? So antimicrobial versus what? Versus the other rayon, right? <laughs> of course it's antimicrobial. Yeah. It's not a natural fiber. Yeah. They claimed it was a natural fiber. It took me and my students, uh, this is a project to do with students, a piece of scotch tape. You just walk into a store, pop the tape against a product so you get some fibers on mm-hmm. the piece of tape, put it on a index card with a number on it, take a picture of the tag, right, with the number, and now you know who sold the product with what fiber. So we can go into, you know, Whole Earth Company and Whole Foods and all sorts of places selling uh, sustainable products. And we can come out, look at them using a high school microscope, right, the same microscope that anybody has access to. And there are distinctive characteristics that tell us the fi- that the fiber was manufactured, that it's not natural. And, and so mm. just to be fair, right, just yeah. to confirm yeah. that all of these products being labeled as bamboo were actually rayon. And uh, the, as I said, the Federal Trade Commission sued people. And I, I don't blame people. The, uh, textile science education is, very, uh, is not very widespread. Mm-hmm. And so um, I can see where people would really want the story to be true, that this very inexpensive fiber that right. feels so nice yeah would be right? I love rayon. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, and there's some versions of rayon, the modal, right? It has yeah. been modified so that modal is an abbreviation for high wet modulus, so it's more launderable. Tencel. This is the fiber that uh, that's the trade name Lyocell is the is the other name uh, the the Is that rayon the too? fiber name? <laughs> no, it's not. So, the company that spent millions of dollars researching it, right? They created a way to make this fiber out of those cellulose sources. So spruce trees, pine trees, bamboo plants. Right. But they created a closed loop system so that they can recycle all of the solvents that are used 
so they don't have any water pollution on the other end because they're recycling oh. the solvents. Okay. They also went ahead and built into their definition of the fiber that you use Forest Stewardship Council certified wood. So there again, they were telling us this story about bamboo plants. They were never promising us. It wasn't ripped out of the mouth of some, some poor panda somewhere, some bird, you know, flicked off the, off the bamboo plant, right? right. So uh, Lyocell is a federal trade commission approved name for the fiber. Tencel is the trade name. And that's the way it should be done. You should do research. You so, should, yeah, you should right. ensure that it's really eco-friendly. And then you should petition for a separate name. And it is better than rayon. It's actually better than cotton for certain yeah. properties. Clearly, there's a lot more to our clothes than what meets the eye. You're listening to Mothering Earth. This is Salwa Khan, and I'm here with Gwendolyn Hustved, associate professor at Texas State University. We'll be back right after this break. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here with Gwendolyn Hustved, Associate Professor at Texas State University, and we're talking about sustainability in clothing. You may not think about sustainability when you go clothes shopping, but it's important to be an educated consumer to think about your clothing in terms of its entire life cycle, from how and where the raw materials come from, to who sews the item, to how you will care for it while you own it. The life cycle analyses demonstrate that 60 to 80% of the damage from apparel, right, it happens after you purchase it. So just in class the other day, I talked with the students about why I don't own a dryer and how I deal with my clothes instead. I want to help them understand that just default to my customer will need a dryer for this product is building in an assumption that the rest of the world doesn't share, first of all. Um, we're the ones that are committed to the twin appliance product. Hmm, I wonder whose idea that was. <laughs> Could it have been the twin appliance manufacturers? <laughs> and uh, the dryers are bad for our clothes. Uh, we, we put our clothes in this box, heat it up, bang them around, right? And, it, and uh, you can be a lot more gentle so, to your products. Right. So I talk with them about how the, the focus on what fiber is it made of leaves out the whole question of how is it cared for? So my polyester pants that I'm wearing right now that I got at a thrift store many years ago, I've altered them in and out many times, and I, I hope to own them for my entire life. Uh, they don't need to be dried at all. They're a hydrophobic fiber, so they're basically almost dry when I pull them out of the washing machine. I just mm -hmm. hang them up, and they dry on their own You know, a few minutes later. Uh, so for me, these pants were a really good call. They're not made of cotton, which means that they're not going to wear out. <laughs> um, yeah, they're not always comfortable for every purpose that I use mm -hmm. them for. But I really want my students to understand that uh, the life cycle of fashion products is long and complex. I love to talk with them about what happens when we as Americans are done with our products. Because yeah. we are not the last people who will own the, these clothes. Right. If you recycle your clothes, which I sure hope you do, put them in a recycle bin, every single last one of them, including your socks, underwear, and bras. Hmm. I bring that up because there are whole countries and other parts of the world where the only clothes that people have available to purchase are our used clothes. Their hmm. local clothing industry has been completely eradicated because how do you compete with clothes that people just gave away in another country? So when we purchase clothes that are made of very low quality, right? Fast fashion clothes, right. for example, 
practically made out of Kleenexes, we're making a decision, right? Even if we do recycle those clothes, the lifespan of those clothes are very short. Right. They'll be binned in a, put in a landfill in some other country. We just kind of export our consumption problem somewhere else. So I right. love talking with my students about why we're consuming so many clothes, why, why cotton is so cheap right now and how that will have to change mm -hmm. because cotton competes with food. It's an agricultural crop. Right, right. The more people need to eat food, the less space we'll have to produce cotton. So I don't just focus on is it organic or non-organic or is it made, you know, is, it a, is there actually yeah. such a thing as a, this fiber, right, or was it a, a greenwashing scam designed to use up uh, waste from another industry, right, or, um, you know, is the, is, the, is the genetic modification for this good or bad, right? There's plenty to argue about there, right, which is a good argument. Yeah. Yeah. But if they've labeled a product that they're going to sell to consumers as tumble dry, medium, they need to understand how, how much electricity they've just committed with that mm -hmm. fashion product. Oh, I didn't mean electricity. I mean carbon emissions yeah. because the electricity has to come right. from somewhere. Right. Yeah. right. So that, that really is a, a high-level uh, look at every piece of clothing that you buy in terms of how you take care of it after mm -hmm. and where it's going to eventually end, end up. up. One of the biggest impacts of it, from the pre the pre consumer use phase, which we've just talked about, right. how that's really the most important phase to think about, is how you're going to care for the product once right. you buy it, right? right? And be and think through how can I reduce the amount of water and electricity I use to care for this product? Right. Don't launder it every time, for example. Give right. it the sniff test, okay? Yeah. So that that's on that side of it. But on the other side, if if you're looking at a product and you wonder about it, um, besides the um, impact of of of, of products that are made out of naturally sourced fibers, right? right? So cotton or linen or wool or silk, right, that, that mm -hmm. come from natural sources. Um, doesn't matter where the fiber came from, all textile products go through processing. So they're turned into yarns, and then the yarns are woven or knitted into textiles, and then they're cut and sewn into products. During that process, the biggest impact is on water. Making the clothes the color that you are wearing right right now requires uh, textile chemistry processes that consume large amounts of water, or they can consume large amounts of water if we're not careful. Uh, many people ask about like, oh, you know, uh, maybe we should be naturally dyeing products. And the challenge with natural dyes is that they themselves are agricultural products, so we have to go through the whole question about how much water and ground and pesticides and everything yeah. else are, are to make the natural dyes. Right for the sheer amount of apparel that's produced around the world, right? right? Low-impact dyes, specifically fiber-reactive dyes, are dyes that have such a strong affinity for the fiber that they don't need to use hot heat in mm. the chemi chemical process, right? So um, less high-quality dyes and natural dyes, mm -hmm. they have to be coaxed into bonding with the fiber, so they use a lot of heat. Well, there's electricity wasted. Plus, now you have hot water that you have to dispose of when you're finished don't want to dump that hot water in a river, right? So you have to let it cool down and mm -hmm. deal with it. So um, not every company, uh, not every textile facility around the world will do that. It depends right. on the environmental regulation of the country. Uh, besides the heat, many natural dyes require additives and, and non-natural dyes, synthetic dyes may require additives mm -hmm. such as salt, a mm -hmm. lot of salt. Um, they may need to be um, dyed in an alkali 
or an acidic environment. So then we're changing the pH of the water. Right. So both a lot of the salt and the pH, <laughs> that's not good for the natural environment. Right. And uh, natural dyes, their affinity for the fiber is typically so low that we have to add in uh, compounds that are called mordants. Um, mordants are typically heavy metals. So Great. actually the effluent from natural dyeing is in most cases Worse uh, pretty serious. So, well, yeah. it depends, right? Yeah. And people work hard to make it better. Right. But um, when it comes to actually producing a product, if you were uh, purchasing a cotton product, then chances are it was dyed using fiber reactive dyes that would use cold water, not very much salt, and, um, and actually are so uh, eager to do the chemistry that they can sort of um, – pad, kind of sponge the dye on, roll them up in plastic wrap and let them just sit in a room for a couple of days and then yeah. rinse them off a couple of times so they don't need to use these huge quantities of water. Water, right. So that's that's something which you as the consumer can't necessarily tell when you look at the product. Right. Yeah. This is why it's a good idea to investigate the brands that you're purchasing from. Right. Right. Go and explore their website. Read their discussion of sustainability and uh, think about their consideration of where they're sourcing their products from. Private label products that are made by, you know, just the department store may make a private label mm -hmm. product. Who knows where those came from? And just because something says it was manufactured in, let's say, Bangladesh, because mm -hmm. that was an area of concern recently after the mm -hmm. Rana Plaza tragedy, just because it's made in Bangladesh doesn't mean that Bangladesh is the country that had its water polluted during the textile manufacturing right. process. Right. Right. Um, this lack of transparency bothers many ethical consumers, and they are choosing to go with brands that are more transparent about their supply chain and whose water they're impacting and where, you know, all along mm. the way, what human beings are being impacted by the production. Right, right. But but is this something, you know, if I went to, let's say I look up eco mm -hmm. Conscious mm -hmm. fashion? Yeah, or eco-fashion. Eco-fashion. Yeah. Uh, is this something I could actually find, find on a manufacturer's website? Absolutely. You know, uh, I follow the Ethical Fashion Forum on Twitter, and uh, they have a sourcing fair every so often, and they are always touting brands, right? Mm -hmm. So um, EFF, it's a group out of Britain. They're always touting brands, uh, usually smaller brands, that are uh, choosing to go with more sustainable sourcing. So the, the, the companies are investigating every step of the supply chain, right. asking questions, right? Right. Uh, the Global Organic Textile Standard, GOTS, it's an organic standard not for the fiber, which, as we mentioned, is, is good, but not all fibers can be produced under that. The, right. the GOTS standard explores the additives, the water, right, the, 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 okay. how the textile was processed. So getting something that is GOTS certified, right, means that those things have been thought about. But even that, I have to confess, the thing that keeps me up at night even more than the than the water, right? It has to do with uh, the question of um, the human impact. Yeah, right? and we haven't talked about that. Yeah. yeah, but that for me, that is part of sustainability. Right, right. As an it ethical consumer, mm -hmm. I am as concerned about whether or not somebody was injured in the making of my garment, right? Because mm -hmm. I know that uh, that around the world, uh, factory conditions are still. Uh, way below uh, ideal, right? Even in places in the United States, right? So we think, oh, it's American-made. It should be really good, right? Um, but uh, the fact is, is that as long as we're not willing to pay very much for our clothes, mm -hmm. as long as we have an addiction that means that we need to buy something new every time something doesn't go our way that day, 
right? As long as we uh, imagine that people are even paying a minute's worth of attention to what we're wearing and that we might have worn it the day before, right? So that we can't accept the idea that we could buy a pair of pants at the thrift store, alter it, and plan to own it for the rest of our lives, right? As a statement about our sustainability. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know who made the pants I'm wearing. Um, it's very possible they were exploited. The most serious form of exploitation from my perspective is people aren't getting paid at all. So the company, yeah. the factory that they were working at, they're very portable. The sewing machines are pretty lightweight. They're not like huge yeah. foundry equipment. So they, they work, they get almost done, and then they show up for work the next day and the factory is literally gone. They never get a paycheck. That's yeah. kind of pretty close to my definition of slavery. Yeah. 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 Well, um, so I think you've, you've answered this to some extent, but um, as consumers, mm -hmm. what do we, you know, can you give us sort of a, <laughs> a set of guidelines, I guess, to, to follow or think yes. about when we go clothes shopping? Absolutely. I'll pull back just one layer more, which is that as consumers, you have a responsibility to educate yourself. There is no simple checklist so you can't say, if I always only do this, mm -hmm. I will not be guilty of exploiting other people. I will not be guilty of damaging the environment if only I do this. To learn more about eco-fashion, do an online search for the global organic textile standard called GOTS. And you can find information at the Ethical Fashion Forum, which is also on Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth. Mm -hmm.